The fury of the violence illustrates the folly of war. It is time to put armed conflict on lockdown and focus together on the true fight of our lives. Dear listener, we find ourselves amidst a true global crisis. Our interconnectivity is more apparent than ever. Nothing seems what it once was. Now is the time to radically realize a world which holds violence and conflict and stops excluding women and youth. As Chris continue to breathe, peace builders worldwide continue to work on a more peaceful world for tomorrow. This season is all about the peace builders making this needed change possible. Listen to their inspiring stories and reimagine this new reality with us. Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by GPAC, UNOI Peace Builders, CSPPS, and Past Peace. Welcome back to the Peace Corner podcast. In this season, in light of the current COVID-19 pandemic, we aim to shed a light on the inspiring work peace builders continue to do during this time, overcoming barriers and innovating in the name of peace. Today, we are joined by special guest Subha Chandran, who is a professor and dean in the School of Conflict and Security Studies at the National Institute of Advanced Studies. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for having me today. No problem. So let's dive straight into the topic of peace building during COVID-19 with a focus on Pakistan. Can you please tell us a bit more about where your passion for peace building came from? What is your story and how did you get to where you are now? I have a political science background, but I started as a security analyst. My initial years, I spent most of my time working on uh, security. Then uh, when I started going to the field, especially Jammu and Kashmir, later Sri Lanka, uh, my uh, outlook towards uh, security started changing. I started focusing more on uh, conflict, conflict in societies uh, than security. Uh, as a part of this, uh, when I was in Delhi, I was heading this Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies. Uh, we started a series of annual publication called Armed Conflicts in South Asia. So we were focusing more on conflicts in South Asia. And then there was a further change in my approach as uh, more and more field researchers, uh, field research started taking place. I realized uh, peace has to be studied separately as an independent uh, discipline and also followed as an uh, independent inquiry. So that's my journey, if you ask me, from a political scientist to a security analyst to a conflict uh, analyst and then now working on peace research. I'm more of a peace researcher uh, than an activist. Uh, I work in the field and I uh, try to analyze what's happening. So I see more myself more as a peace researcher than a peace activist. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's really interesting. And it's good to hear that you have so much experience on the ground. So you really get a feel for, for how peace can occur. And that leads us on to our, our next question, which is about Conflict Weekly, a recently developed initiative which reviews conflict and peace processes around the world, which you've been involved in. Could you tell us a little bit more about this, please? The idea of a Conflict Weekly uh, came mainly because of the information overload. There is so much of a news. Some of them are real, uh, some of them blurred, some of them are totally fake. When we work on conflict and uh, peace, the most important issue is we need the right information, uh, right analysis, and uh, more importantly, on, at the right time. 
cities. So we need real-time information, real news, and uh, based on real research, and uh, equally importantly, from the field. You know, if I'm working on JNK or on Sri Lanka, I need somebody from uh, JNK and Sri Lanka or Northeast, uh, you know, giving me the right information at the right time. So, you know, uh, there is a need for this real-time uh, inputs from the ground. So the Conflict Weekly is one of, one of the objectives of the Conflict Weekly is to address this real-time information based on credible sources and also from the region. The second idea behind the Conflict Weekly is also to see whether this could be a capacity building uh, initiative, meaning whether we can uh, get the right capacity in terms of people who can work from the region and more importantly in terms of getting the younger lot, the new generation uh, to contribute and also to train them in, in pursuing uh, research and analysis relating to conflict and uh, peace. The larger objective you asked me, you know, what, what are we planning to do with this conflict weekly is to reach out to the larger audience across the globe and also involve them uh, so that we in South Asia, that uh, we don't look at conflict and peace from an island perspective. We also realize what's happening in the rest of the world. And also we can learn from others uh, so that we don't have to repeat the same mistakes or we don't have to invest in reinventing the wheel. So one of the objective is you know, to know what is happening in the rest of the world and learn from them. And also to inform the rest of the world what's happening in South Asia. The Conflict Weekly is a kind of a vehicle to the rest of the world and uh, to get the rest of the world to South Asia. My larger goal or uh, objective or a dream is to make this Conflict Weekly as a kind of a weekly journal or a weekly magazine. Uh, you know, I, I was always impressed with The Economist, uh, the weekly magazine. You know, it covers a lot on international relations, more, more importantly on economy. So I'm looking for a magazine or a weekly, something like an economist, but solely focused on uh, peace and conflict with uh, that many scholars, that many researchers from around the world contributing to it, the way that they are contributing, contributing to the economics. There are a lot of journals, you know, one may ask, you know, like from conflict resolution to peace research, there are so many journals, so why would you need conflict weekly? That's precisely the point, you know, by the time the uh, by the time I read in a, a journal, the research is almost a year old or uh, 18 months old sometimes. I am looking at uh, this to become a uh, weekly at the global level uh, with the quality of an economist uh, focusing on peace and conflict. So that's the larger idea behind the conflict weekly, what is happening and uh, where we want to take this forward. Yeah, well, it's really interesting to hear how you can provide so much transparency in real time and also have involvement of uh, training the new generation in research. And that brings us on to the next question, which is um, specifically about Pakistan. And in Pakistan, the majority of the population is under the age of 25. And uh, youth alienation has been described as a social issue which contributes towards conflict in Pakistan. Can you please talk to us a bit more about this phenomenon and how it's impacted conflict? The demography aspect of what you mentioned on uh, the majority below 25, uh, the youth bulge that uh, 
we are talking about. It is not specifically only to Pakistan. It, it is the case in South Asia as well. So the aspirations of the youth, what is given to them in terms of opportunities available to the youth and also quality of those opportunities uh, that is given to the youth from education to employment. To a large extent, cuts across uh, Afghanistan to Myanmar, Nepal to Sri Lanka. So to a large extent, uh, the problem of the youth in South Asia is uh, common to what we see in Pakistan. So we are not talking about only the Pakistani youth. Uh, what we are going to discuss will also hold good for a youth from Northeast or from Sri Lanka uh, or from Afghanistan. Uh, that's uh, number one. Number two is the youth bulge. It's not a worker bulge or it's not a quality bulge, uh, especially in Pakistan. Uh, even today, there is, a, there is a difference between the youth bulge in the rural areas and in the urban areas. Uh, as a result, that there is an imbalance in Pakistan. To an extent, that is the case in the rest of South Asia as well. The rural-urban imbalance amongst the youth. Uh, this leads to uh, those uh, who are in urban areas taking uh, use of the limited opportunities available, whereas the youth from the uh, rural areas feel left out or feel alienated. You know, this the, the idea of alienation comes not from, to a large extent, not from any specific policies pursued by the state, uh, but rather due to lack of opportunities and uh, opportunist politics that is being pursued at the provincial level uh, within Pakistan. To a large extent, the same story holds good for the rest of South Asia. Uh, the next issue is the quality of employment and the quality of education. Uh, unfortunately, the youth that once they finish their degree, they believe that they have the right to quality employment without realizing that there has to be quality uh, education in the back. Uh, so this, this education or lack of it, or I would not say lack of education, it is more the question of quality of the education, our educational institutions uh, from primary education to university, education impacts. In Pakistan, the, the bigger challenge is how much is being invested in education. Uh, education is not a priority area for Pakistan law. This has been the case for uh, the last many decades. As a result, less than a percentage of the GDP is spent on uh, education. And even this 1% of education, the bulk of it goes to the urban areas, rural areas are left out. If I am an elite, or if I belong to an upper middle class or upper class, I'm not worried about this situation because I'm going to send my wards to Europe or US or to Canada or to Australia to get educated. Uh, so, you know, my son or my daughter, if I'm an upper middle class or upper class, he is going to be educated in US or Canada or in Australia and is he or she is going to settle there. So I'm not worried about that. So I'm also not worried about the quality of education within Pakistan because my children are not going to study. But the problem comes for the lower middle class, middle class and the lower class, which also forms substantial part of the population. So education becomes the most important element in terms of getting, providing the youth uh, the right weapon to fight. Finally, employment, access to employment and also quality employment. There are many engineers who will be selling 
uh, CDs or uh, uh, running bikes and uh, selling food in the in the market. You know that that's the that's the quality of the job that one gets even after an engineering degree. So this quality employment. So we have youth. There is a youth bulge, but that youth bulge is not a quality bulge. So the state has to prominently intervene and then ensure the youth bulge is a worker bulge, and the worker bulge is also a quality worker bulge. So I see that's that's where the alienation comes from. So the primary issue here is education, and it is not the case only with Pakistan. It cuts across South Asia, from Afghanistan to Myanmar, Nepal to Sri Lanka. Thank you. And you touched on the quality of education, opportunity, and employment in your answer. And so I was wondering, why is it so important that the youth have the space to make an impact or contribute towards peace building specifically? And have you managed to involve youth in conflict weekly? Okay, that's a very important question. Uh, why should youth be involved in peace building? Yeah, there are uh, two agents I see very important for uh, taking the mantle of peace. One, uh, the mothers, and this, the second one are the youth. I think these are the people who can uh, change any conflict society if uh, there is right emphasis. The mothers provide the resilience, and the youth have to take that resilience, convert that resilience into an opportunity, and uh, take this forward. If the youth do not get the right opportunity, then the violence in the streets is led by them. But any conflict region in South Asia, if you look at, you know, the, the violence is uh, led by them. It, it's a different story who are behind the violence may not be the youth, you know, who instigate these people are not the youth. Uh, but then they are the catalysts. They are the one who are in the front. Perhaps uh, it's important they understand what they are fighting for and why they are fighting for. Uh, one of the reasons why I would want to engage with the youth, especially in conflict weekly, is, is A, to get their perspective on how they see things and also through them uh, send a larger message to the larger society on uh, what they could do. If you look at the conflict weekly, almost 80% of uh, the writing uh, is written is undertaken by the youth. Uh, sometimes they are even uh, college students or university students uh, from different parts of the uh, region, different parts of South Asia. They are the one who writes it. Uh, we, the only constraint that we give them in writing is we, we give them a basic structure, but the writing comes from them. And you may ask why youth to write and why not the senior? Two reasons. One, I get better idea from them. Sometimes, you know, how to take the process forward. We get better ideas from the, from the youth. Second, we also get to know what is the thinking, you know. If we have to address them as the primary catalyst, I think we should know uh, what they are thinking about. And then the larger issue of engaging the youth, especially from across South Asia, I sincerely hope Conflict Weekly becomes a platform uh, for this. That is to bring the youth on a larger academic and research platform so that somebody in Sri Lanka feels connected with someone from Afghanistan. Maybe somebody in, 
in India's uh, northeast in Assam feels connected from with somebody from the Rakhine state in Myanmar. Or if I have to look at the larger one, maybe uh, somebody from Meghalaya in uh, in India gets connected with someone from the Middle East. So I sincerely hope this conflict weekly provides also a platform for the youth who are working, who are from different parts of the world. Uh, you know, somebody may be a refugee in, in the different parts of the world, but still want to know what is happening in, in their part of the world. Or somebody may be a migrant or have shifted to Canada or Australia, but still wants to work with them. This provides them an opportunity. And then, uh, as I told you in my first, uh, to answer your first question, I also see them as a part of the capacity building across the world besides being a platform. So that's the youth story to Conflict Weekly. Well, it's really great to hear that 80% of the writing is uh, by youth and also that you would like Conflict Weekly to be used as a platform for the youth to provide research and analysis and also uh, to connect across the globe. So that's really inspiring. And uh, now we would like to move on to discussing the impact of COVID-19 on your work as a peace builder. And I was wondering, how have you seen COVID-19 impacting the peacebuilding field? Can you expand a bit on the discussion revolving peacebuilding efforts in Pakistan, but also as you touched on South Asia, perhaps you would like to discuss that too. What are some of the struggles that you've seen and how have they been overcome? COVID-19 is a problem in terms of working on peacebuilding or peace research. But at the same time, it is also an opportunity for peace building and uh, peace research in bringing people together. I realize now during post-COVID, I am engaging with people much more than I used to engage when I used to go to the field research. Uh, I am talking to more people face-to-face than uh, during the COVID situation. In fact, I would see COVID as given us an opportunity to engage more. I work in JNK. That's my primary research area. I stay in Bangalore. If there is an event, uh, an unfortunate event or otherwise, if I have to go to uh, Jammu and Kashmir, I have to take two flights. I have to apply for leave from my office or I have to inform them and then go to uh, land in either in Jammu city or Srinagar city and then uh, take a, a truck or, or a jeep further three to four hours. So, you know, though it is within India, we are talking about 12 to 18 hours or more than that to reach the place. And then we start, you know, you talk to people, you you interview people. Uh, sometimes, you know, um, you can interview six to eight people in a day and then, you know, you get tired. But sitting here in uh, Bangalore or sitting here in Madurai in my mother's house, I'm able to talk to them through video or uh, phone much more than I used to talk to them. You know, that I don't have to wait for uh, a flight to catch and land in Srinagar. So, you know, this may be never thought that we could uh, talk face to face. You don't have to go to the field. Still, you are in touch and you are in touch with more people. And uh, remember, you know, when, uh, when we used to go for field research, it's always you get up in the nine o'clock in the morning and then be there in the field by 9.30, 10. Uh, and then finish it because some of the conflict regions you can't work late in the evening. So come back by 5 o'clock. Here, you know, uh, you have at least uh, 12 to 18 hours for you. you know, anytime you can call them, you can receive them. Uh, 
so i see covid also as an opportunity in terms of face to face research in terms of real time uh, discussion of course uh, you know there are it doesn't mean that you know that uh, going to going in person working in in the field uh, you know that would never be replaced yeah that would uh, you know nobody can replace it no technology can replace it but then we don't have to see this as an impediment and then uh, feel bad about it you know it, uh, covid has also provided an opportunity there are more people zooming each other there are more people go to uh, each other multiple platforms they they they're talking to each other but the larger issue is uh, you know the the nature of coming together you know because of uh, covid 19 uh the state if it doesn't want a particular meeting you can ask it can use covid 19 to prevent you from coming together uh, so the physical movement gets restricted this is this is happening not only in in south asia not only in pakistan it's happening across the world uh, state using covid 19 as a as a reason or an excuse from preventing people to come together uh, so that's a major impediment and the larger problem especially in peace building uh, in covid 19 though i i was not a peace activist i am not a peace activist is in terms of uh, resource sharing in terms of rehabilitation in terms of uh, sharing uh, from medicines to to daily provisions there are many things that take place uh, even hospitals get uh, restricted uh, so that that is a major issue you know to to work in the ground level Uh, to work with uh, with communities uh, that are affected uh, you know you can that kind of uh, work we cannot take it through computers or through zoom you have to be present there and then the next issue is you know though i was telling i am able to talk to uh, each other on a one to one physical meetings you know especially when i in a conflict region if you are talking to one person or if you are talking to a group if they are five or six people uh, there is an element of confidence amongst them when they interact with you you know in uh, phone or in zoom since that personal touch is missing and that confidence also get missed so i i see that you know it doesn't give you that uh, that personal touch and that confidence that may give you while interacting with each but the, the larger problem as i see of covid is this the rehabilitation uh, resource and uh, helping them in in real need that's where uh, especially in some of the conflict regions uh, that people are going to uh, get affected from uh, medical relief uh, to uh, even meetings in which uh, the mothers come together to grieve each other or share their pain with uh, each other uh, kind of those kind of meetings are also now not allowed so you know especially sharing grief you know uh, in covid 19 situation now i'm sure uh, gpac members and others would have known what happened in kabul uh, the attack on the maternity ward in in kabul the family members of those who buried the children or the mothers or the wives uh, they could not interact with they could not because they cannot be a crowd crowd you know you were asked to all the funeral with five or 10 people which means you are not able to grieve uh, i think uh, that sharing the grief sharing the pain not only the grief sharing the pain is a must in a conflict situation and that that gets uh, restricted during covid period 
It's really terrible to hear stories like the maternity ward attack in Kabul and uh, our thoughts are really with everyone who that's impacted and um, we really hope that peace building efforts can help to, to improve situations like these. And um, just to briefly ask you, uh, you touched earlier on how uh, Conflict Weekly provides transparency to situations and during this pandemic, there have been substantial difficulties in disseminating information. Do you believe that Conflict Weekly is able to help assist people receive information during this difficult time? On two counts, yes, I'll, I'll say that Conflict Weekly is providing not only a platform, but reaching out. Count one is uh, we are able to reach them. Thankfully, the internet is working. So all they need is a phone, not even a computer these days. And uh, the way that Conflict Weekly goes is it's not a PDF file, so you can just read it. And then uh, in terms of language, it's very simple. In terms of platform we are using, it's, it's not a tough platform. So just a phone with a, even a 2G connection, you should be able to read. So we are able to reach. So that is one point. The other point is how Conflict Weekly is helping is we are also getting information from there. We are not only reaching there, we are getting them, uh, you know, uh, as I was telling you earlier, uh, people from the region, people from the conflict region are contributing, especially the young scholars or the youth are contributing. It is also a way of uh, they expressing what they feel and uh, what should be heard. So I, I see it is going on the track. But then, as I told you, the larger objective is something else, uh, a weekly in a real weekly sense, not a e-alert that we are talking about. As of now, the weekly is more of an alert that goes to be. We should uh, get it as a, as a magazine where people come and read us. We are there, you know, it's a long way to go. Uh, we are a work in progress. Uh, Conflict Weekly has just started it, a long way to go. Uh, still a work in progress. Yeah, it's really great to hear um, that you're helping to reach people, but also receive information and allow people to have the room to express themselves. So thank you so much for, for helping to do that. And we have one final question for you today. I hope that's okay. Um, we just wanted to ask, uh, have you got a takeaway message or an inspiring story you've seen in the responses of peace builders to COVID-19? We really want to give a message of hope and solidarity to all of those listening to our podcast. You know, uh, the message that Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi gave is, he said his life is the uh, message. So in, on, on that uh, note, you know, I would, uh, from a conflict region, I think the story of every mother, I think is a message. All we need to do is to just listen to them. Thousand stories, you know, thousand inspirational stories that uh, we will get to know. If only we just have to listen to the mothers and how they cope up uh, with violence, how they cope up with, uh, with economic downturn, how they cope up with uh, grief. And yet, that uh, they take the lead, they provide the opportunity, and uh, you know they they take the next generation forward. I think uh, you know if we have to look for any inspiration, I would say every mother in a conflict region is an inspiration. If you're asking for a specific figures, you know you know I work with two uh, GPAC members in Atli. One is uh, Nigat Khan from Pakistan. And the other one is uh, Visaka, uh, 
from Sri Lanka, Isaka Dharmadasa. These two women are extremely strong. See, it is, uh, you know, for me, uh, as a male, it is easy to work in a conflict region. You know, I go to JNK, I go to Sri Lanka, or I go to Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, it is easy for a male to work as a, as a part of the conflict research or peace research. But to work in a country like uh, Pakistan or in Sri Lanka, in those days, it was not totally democratic. Even today, it's not. Uh, you know, there are still a lot of influences of the intelligence agencies. Uh, you know, there are, you know, the media is not fully open. There are there are a lot of uh, restrictions. Despite, uh, you know, these, the way that uh, these two women work, you know, if you ask me, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, GPAC is doing a larger story about uh, how these uh, people are working. Uh, I think we have to listen to them. I see them as my inspiration in South Asia. Thank you for sharing that. That's so lovely. And also for sharing your own inspiring peace-building story and for highlighting how important involving youth and connecting youth across the world is for, for peace-building efforts now and in the future. And we wish you and your family good health during this difficult time and we hope you join us again soon in the future. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for listening to the Peace Corner podcast. We amplify the voices that pursue a sustainable peace, especially now in the face of a pandemic. Keep reimagining a better world with us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening.